Welcome to the Tiwahanga Infrastructure for a Better Future podcast, a series where we talk to experts both from here and overseas about the infrastructure challenges we are facing. Infrastructure projects around the world face challenges when it comes to cost control. A consistent theme, especially on large scale and complex projects, is that they take longer than expected and cost more than expected. However, some places seem to get better results than others. Last December, Tewahanga published a report entitled The Lay of the Land, Benchmarking New Zealand's Infrastructure Delivery Costs, that explores how the cost to build infrastructure in New Zealand compares with other high-income countries. Today, I'm very happy to be joined by Dr. Eric Goldwyn from New York University to talk about why infrastructure costs can differ between countries and what can be done about this. Eric leads the Transit Costs Project, which has gathered data on uh, over 900 underground rail projects in 59 countries and undertaken detailed case studies of rail project delivery in the United States, Sweden, Turkey, and Italy. You can find their work online at transitcosts.com. And I note we actually use some of Eric's data in our recent research. Um, for this discussion, I'm also joined by my colleague Liz Innes, who's our Director of Investment and Reviews. Welcome, Eric and Liz. Thanks for talking to us. Now, just, just first off, um, you, you've just published your final case study on New York City, which culminates over uh, three years of work on the project. Um, and, and, and I'm wondering, what motivated you to focus so closely on transport infrastructure costs? So we focused on on transit in particular because, uh, one, the range of costs were so great, even to just sort of a lay person. So in the case of New York, we built the second a phase one of the Second Avenue subway, and it cost about $4.6 billion to build um, a little over a mile and a half, let's say. So you're talking, you know, in the, in the realm of about $2 billion per mile. Um, and... You don't need to do a ton of sort of additional research to to find examples of costs being much less than that in other parts of the world. I think the other part of it is that, uh, well, I'm from New York, and one of my colleagues, Alan Levy, also spent a lot of time in New York, and um, New York had not built a subway expansion in in decades, and so it was just a big deal. Um, and so we wanted to sort of dig into it and understand it better. And there was some media coverage around this project. And when we started to look at sort of infrastructure a little bit more generally, um, we saw that it was it was much easier to find information on on uh, you know subways and metros than you know sort of highways and, and things like that. Um, so that that sort of led us to look at at rapid rail in particular. The other part of it is that we absolutely have sort of an agenda and a bias where we want to see more transit infrastructure uh, built per dollar spent. And so I think, you know, that sort of also helps explain why we looked at transit in particular. Hmm. So so the kind of the, the focus there was on thinking about you've got this category projects that you haven't been doing very much of. You've got this big funding commitment to start spending money on it. You're thinking about how can we make that dollar go as far as possible? Is that the that the basics of it? Well, so the the funding commitment now has gotten a lot bigger in the Biden administration. But yeah, when when we got started, that was less clear. Um, but our issue was these are big sums of money, right? For so going outside of New York, let's say. So I've, I've been working on some projects on the west coast of America in Seattle, 
and they're they're building a line currently that's estimated to be about $12 billion, right? So this is the single most expensive investment that city has made in any project by like a factor of three. It's a big deal, is the point. Um, and if we want rail to scale, which, so I, I have a transportation planning background. If we want rail to scale and compete with the automobile um, and provide sort of the anywhere to anywhere connectivity um, that the automobile offers, you need to have sort of robust, expansive networks. And so building a mile or two at a time is just, is not gonna get you where you need to go. Liz, we're, we're currently in New Zealand also facing some big sort of investment scale up um, questions right across a range of different areas of infrastructure. Can you reflect a little bit on how some of these issues are playing out in New Zealand and whether any of this resonates locally? Oh, look, it absolutely does, Peter. Um, we're just as worried about cost in New Zealand as you are overseas. We've got an enormous program of investment that we need to take on. We've got a market that is still quite constrained. We haven't attracted the Australian players that we thought we would. Uh, we've got big inflation. And unfortunately, we've had a number of natural disasters uh, that we need to recover from. And so cost is an incredible factor for us to manage so that we can build back to the standards that we need for New Zealanders now and later. We need to be able to afford this infrastructure now, but also over the whole of its life. Eric, just picking up on that, one thing that I find really interesting and compelling about your research is that you have taken a truly global view. You've looked around at how, you know, literally everybody has done this same thing, uh, everyone who's done it. Um, and, and I guess, you know, we all know how difficult infrastructure delivery is. And I'm wondering who does this stuff really well in the area that you've looked at. Sure. So, yeah, we 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 wanted to go beyond sort of the headline cost. So our, we have a database of over 900 projects, as you mentioned, and so that reports headline costs. And as Liz can tell you, headline costs don't tell you that much about the sort of nitty gritty of a project. Right. So when you look at subways, that can include tunnels, viaducts, 10 stations per mile, one station per mile. It can include, you know, very low property acquisition costs or very high costs. Um, so there's a lot missing in there and we recognize that, um, but we wanted to use our database as a way to guide us to understand, okay, well, we see things are very expensive in country X, Y, and Z. Okay, let's try to understand what's going on. Maybe it is just all property costs and labor and, and something like that. Um, it's it's not. Um, and then let's look on the lower end and see what's what's driving you know their lower costs. So th that that was the, the goal of our database. And then so places that we looked at more in detail on the low cost side were um, Istanbul in Turkey, uh, Stockholm in, in Sweden, and we looked at four cities in Italy. Um, and we picked these three countries and handful of cities for a bunch of different reasons. Um, so on the Istanbul side of things, they have sort of the largest program in the world, excepting China, um, where they've built, they are building or have plans to build 300 kilometers over like a 30 year period, a 30 or 40 year period. Um, so that's interesting. Um, you know, how do you start from, from zero and, and sort of build up that, that sort of regime? Um, the Italian example, is one where they saw costs sort of sort of you know on par with you know other European capital cities. Then they saw their costs ramp up 
and then they saw their costs come back down. And so that's an interesting phenomenon. And so we wanted to know more about that. And then in Stockholm, uh, very low costs, rich country, expensive labor costs, um, also some geological similarities to New York, not identical, of course, but you know, hard rock, that kind of thing. And so we wanted to sort of adjust us or so high in, in North America. Um, and so we wanted to address a bunch of those things through our case studies and say, okay, well, these places are inexpensive and they deal with some of the same things that, that we deal with. So what, what can we do um, that they're doing, if that makes sense? I mean, that's a super eclectic mix of countries, right? <laughs> Sweden, Italy, Turkey. Um, yes. And, and I mean, Liz, would those be the places that would traditionally look to for best practice lessons? No. <laughs> you know, the, the short answer is no, because I think it's um, most easy to look over the ditch because of so many shared standards and market factors that make it that knowledge easy to transfer into the New Zealand context. But I think the reality is we want to learn from anybody who can bring down costs. Um, we want to especially learn from those who can learn and and turn the curve of their costs. I, I think that is really interesting, as you mentioned, Derek. Uh, so I think uh, although it's easier to look straight over the ditch, maybe we do need to be uh, looking for more international inspiration to solve the challenges that are before us now. One, one question I have, right? So I'm thinking about the countries that we hear from a lot, right? We hear a lot from Australia. We hear a lot from the UK. Occasionally, people will go to Hong Kong or Singapore. I get the sense from reading your work that these are generally all um, sort of quite high cost countries to build at least underground rail in. Um, yes. when, you know, but they're convenient because they're English speaking um, and they're they're relatively close culturally and 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 um, and geographically to us. When you did start to go to, to, to the countries you mentioned, um, Sweden, Italy, uh, Turkey, what were the challenges you faced in getting in and understanding what was happening there? Yeah, so our research program started February of 2020. Um, and I mentioned that because COVID began in March of 2020. And so our initial research plan was that we were going to like travel all over the world and, you know, stay in the finest hotels and, you know, you know, not worry about uh, transit infrastructure. No, I'm kidding. And we, the point was that we would go and sort of make contacts there and, and so on and so forth. Obviously, that did not happen. Um, so we quickly pivoted. We hired um, our colleague, LF Ansari, who is Turkish. Um, and so she led the Turkish case. We hired this guy, Marco Kitti, um, an Italian guy, um, to lead our Italian case. And then I did you know some of the American ones and my, my colleague Alan uh, led the the Sweden case and also we all sort of worked on all the cases together too I don't want to make it seem like it was all a one person show um, so you know the idea was one yeah we needed to really you know talk to people who spoke the language could read the documents and then could also have the contacts at the consulting firms and with government to sort of ask some questions and, and get access to material. Um, so that was that was sort of critical to our research approach was really sort of 
get access to to great people. So, you know, as I said, I I, I did most on the our, we did a case study up in in Massachusetts and one in New York, and and there we interviewed. You know, I think in the New York case it's like eighty different people, and you know we got a lot of documents. So we have federal reporting. So our federal government has a bunch of documents. The agency has a bunch of documents, um, and then consultants were you know very transparent um so it seemed to me at least and then retired people at agencies and things like that so the idea was you know there's no one person who has all the information and so i think that's both if you're a researcher that's intimidating and not intimidating where you know there's like the perfect person to talk to um we were very much of the mindset that we would just talk to a bazillion people, some of whom would not be the right people, and some of whom would sort of parrot sort of conventional wisdom to us. And that absolutely happened. Um, in, in the New York case, there's a, a segment about how, you know, we talked to this person who had worked at the transit agency in, in a very high capacity. And, and, and he was the first person to sort of give us a nugget that we hadn't come across in any of our research or talking to people. And so I was like, okay, this, this is a direction I want to, you know, focus more on. Um, so the point being, you know, to Liz's initial point, um, absolutely. You know, I am an English speaker. I often end up, you know, I've read a lot of benchmarking studies from the UK. Um, and I've read a lot of UK stuff and Canadian stuff. Um, I've read some Australian stuff too. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's easier, uh, to go that down that path, but by creating the database, you just sort of see, okay, there are some other places that are cheaper and then figuring out how do you get access, uh, to people over there. Um, a number of people speak so English sort of, too, you know, like that, that was helpful. So I was like on a panel with someone from Metro Madrid. Um, his English isn't great, but he understood stuff and I understood stuff. Anyhow, so that, that's sort of the... Hmm. The method to the madness. I think that's sort of an interesting consideration for how we look around for lessons. Actually, I mean, we 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 do think we do think outside of New Zealand because it's a quite small place, but um, you know, we don't always think about all the places we 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 could look at. Well, I just I, um, I, I don't I don't mean to break up the flow, but Liz said something very interesting. I thought about getting the players from Australia. Getting I think you know so New Zealand is different than than the U.S. in, in this respect. But in our in our case on on Stockholm, in the Nordic countries in general, they've made a similar comment where they're shifting their sort of procurement practice so they can be more attractive to international consultants and contractors. And from our perspective, some of those changes that they're 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 making aren't good ones, but it's what they ha they think they have to do in order to get these multinational corporations to bid on their projects. So anyhow, I know that's not related, but I just I heard it from Liz, and it, it, it resonates with some things that I've seen. Well, that that was that was going to be the next question, actually. Um, having done the work, um, what what are some of the factors that can make a difference? To, to how cost-effectively different places deliver infrastructure. Sure. What are the things you guys have picked up in the research? So the, the, the biggest thing that we found, and, and this is sort of the least, uh, you know, it's not really going to surprise anyone, but governance is, is a, big, a big part of it, right? You need elected leaders who, you know, will pay for these projects, will support these projects, um, we use this term macromanage. We don't want the micromanaging. So in the case of a you know a subway, 
you don't want a, a governor or a president or whatever saying, oh, the station needs to go here. You want them to say, this project is good. We will pay for this project. If you have complications with, you know, a neighboring uh, city or with a city agency or a federal agency or a state agency, we will intervene to help clear the path. Um, but we're not going to tell the civil service how to do their job. We are going to, you know, write a check and we're going to be supportive and sort of we'll sort of get out of the way at that point. Um, so that's sort of one of the, the biggest pieces of all of this. Um, and there are a lot of sort of risks that come along when they when elected officials start to micromanage and you start to make political promises. And we can talk more about that if you'd like. Um, another big part of it is having a civil service that is sort of empowered to act. Um, so I've been, as I mentioned, I've been working on a project in Seattle with their transit agency, Sound Transit, and their transit agency, they have a board of directors that they report to. They do all this research on proposed, you know, light rail extensions, but they don't make a recommendation to the board, right? So they do all the work and then they give it to the board. And then the board is made up of elected officials who are not subject area experts, just to, and it sounds crazy. I, I'm sure you might think, uh, and it is. And so it's led to lots of delays and, and blah, blah, blah. So we want an empowered civil service, but also in America, and I'm sure this is true in New Zealand, we've farmed out a lot of our expertise, right? So we hire and rely on a lot of consultants to do work. What we found in other parts of the world that do this work you know, quicker and, and more cheaply is that they have sort of bigger internal agencies. And you know, we, we focus a lot on this group in Milan called Metropolitana Milanese, which is sort of like a, a, a publicly owned, yeah, a publicly owned corporation. And um, they, they do all the sort of uh, planning, project management, and construction management of some of these projects, and they have to provide the work at, I think, a 26% discount. Um, so they win all the contracts, of course. Um, and they also, they do work um, other in other parts of Italy on helping them with their light rails and, and metros, and they even do some work internationally. And they also manage the sewer system in, uh, in Milan. So they have, like, the underground realm um, under their sort of uh, roof, um, but they whereas don't, they don't actually do the construction, right? No, no, they're, they they're, they're responsible yes. for planning and designing it, right? So yes, they bring it to exactly. the point where you can take it out to a contractor and have certainty that this is actually something that can be built. Yeah, I, we're not advocating that Peter and Liz go out there with jackhammers and 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 build the projects, um, but we are advo we are advocating. I mean, you know, if you can do it, then by all means. This comes up in New Zealand around, you know, there's often a discussion about should we bring back the Ministry of Works, right? Oh, okay. And the sure. Ministry of Works was actually, you know, both doing the design and the planning and the construction. So my uncle, who's a civil engineer, started his career at the Ministry of Works before uh -huh. it was disestablished. Well, um, so that type of group, though, seems like it would be very well versed in sort of how to plan design and, and manage construction. And so in our New York case study, the the example that we gave is so New York City Transit, which operates the trains in New York, they had a group of 1600 engineers on staff who did 95% uh, of the construction management and 60% of the design work for the subway system. Um, that group sort of was not replenished over time. And so people aged out and retired and that kind of thing. And they were replaced with a group called um, MTA Capital Construction, which took over all the capital projects across the MTA's 
um, multiple operating agencies. So in New York, our subway system, uh, the entity that runs the subway system also does commuter rail in Long Island and in um, Westchester, which is not relevant for anyone's purposes here, but it's multiple operating agencies. And so there's now one capital construction entity. And that entity has about, I think at the time of Saginaw, it's be 120 full-time sort of staff. So just a, you know, a sea change in how, how we do things. And so that meant, you know, hiring uh, a number of sort of architecture and engineering consultants to sort of do a lot of work. Liz, um, how have these issues played out in New Zealand um, in terms of the, the the sort of maintenance of of client capability to to, to plan and plan and execute projects? Look, I think it's a really mixed bag. Um, we've got some agencies who are quite capable, who have pipelines that are well developed, who are. I guess bring that producer-like mindset to the infrastructure that they build and the way that they manage their networks. I guess we see it more in the regulated networks than we do in those public networks, but um, there is some emergence of it in education and, and health is certainly aiming that way. I think um, though we haven't really done a good enough job of making our approach standardised and understandable, and that means it's bespoke every time. And that means that we're standing up a new thing and a new team and a new policy and a new way of doing things every time. And that's expensive and stupid. Hmm. So I think we could learn quite a lot from the client side about and this thinking about investing in client side for better decision making and better infrastructure outcomes uh, and bring that into our system policy. And Eric, one of the other findings in your report is around how how the those public sector clients of infrastructure engage with the construction market. What 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 are you finding there, right? Because this is you've got to hand the project off to somebody um, to actually build. How does that work in 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 some other places? Right. So in our sort of two American case studies, you know, New York's New York and in Massachusetts, um, we found that you know the 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 client side was sort of ill-equipped. To handle um, sort of the job. So in, in the Green Line extension up in Massachusetts, the sort of I think the very clear story, right, is there were four full-time employees managing essentially a two billion dollar project at an agency. It was the biggest project in the agency's history. Um, they had not built um, sort of a rail extension I think since the 80s, um, and so they were overwhelmed. And I mean, just managing a two billion dollar project, something I have not done, but I can understand just like doing the paperwork and you know, getting people paid on time and dealing with change orders is, you know, that it takes a lot of time and y you need resources uh, behind that. Um, and, you know, I, I think what Liz, what Liz was just saying about the bespoke nature of standing up, I, I'm guessing sort of the SPDV model of, uh, you know, the special purpose delivery vehicle, which is very much in vogue in the English speaking world. I find the same thing is that bespoke is bad. Um, they have no track record when it comes to contractors. So contractors are going to say, well, this is probably a pretty risky thing. I'm going to, you know, add in a 10%, 15%, 20%, uh, you know, risk premium on this. The other thing is, and I don't know enough about New Zealand here, but how do they sort of interface with, with government and are they, you know, so in, in America, we have transit agencies that are not cities and they're not states. They're like in this funky meso zone. And so they get pushed around and they don't have the authority to say no, 
right? And having the authority to say no is is like really important. Um, and so I, I think that you know that that part about standardization. We talk about standardization too. We're talking more about design standardization, um, but it's the same principle. Um, you know, if you have to reinvent the wheel every single time. Uh, you know, it's sometimes you're going to do a good job and, and sometimes and many times you're not going to do a good job. Hmm. So just to kind of maybe close on a positive example, the, the I want to bring us back to Istanbul, right, which which you mentioned, they've gone from sort of absolutely nothing to this enormous program of construction. How did they do that? And how has that played out with the construction market and with the the city and the and the the, the federal government's capability? Sure. So there are a couple different things. So so one, um, population growth in, in Turkey has been dramatic uh, over the last 50 years. Um, I want to say like basically from like 30 million people to 80 million people. Um, and the uh, when it came and so Istanbul, big old city, traffic was really bad. And so sort of the history of subways is when surface level traffic gets really bad, you look for alternatives. And so they finally were like, all right, we'll, we'll do a subway. Uh, so London did that in the 1860s and Istanbul did it in the, in the 1980s, 1990s. Um, and so their, their mayor, the mayor of Istanbul, who's now the, the president, you know, ran on building subways and subsequent mayors have also run on building subways. And they also sort of, and you know, well, I won't get into that, but they also have sort of incentivized the construction industry to, to, to blossom. And so there have been some quality issues as we saw with the, the earthquake just recently. I don't, I don't want to pretend that it's been perfect. Um, but what, the thing that was, I think, most striking when we were doing our case is the number of bids on, on subway projects, right? So I don't know, Liz, what is a good number of bids for a project that you're managing that's, you know, $200 million, $200 million or more? How many bids would you expect? I'd be pretty ecstatic with four. With four. So they have examples of 15 bids, right? Like, yeah, you know, just like an insane number. You know, the, the competition is enormous. Um, you know, here in the U.S., we not you know we have projects where you get one bid. Uh, uh, you know, two bids is three bids is yeah. I think four bids is ecstatic. Um, and so their construction market has sort of um, dramatically increased and specialized in lots of different ways. And they brought in you know experts from Italy, experts from you know from France to to help them initially. Um, but this is getting a little bit technical. The, the the Turks just built a extension to to the airport, and they're using their own developed CBTC, which is a communications signaling system thing that allows you know it deals with the spacing of the trains. They developed it themselves, um, right? So like they have sort of invested heavily in developing a domestic construction industry. And there has, you know, in in the transit space, they've been doing a lot of stuff and they've sort of pioneered several, you know, new techniques and uh, um, technologies. So they, this sort of CBTC technology, um, track, they have a, a track innovation. And they also, they, they built a tunnel under um, the Bosphorus, uh, the Marmarai project. And they had brought in the Japanese to help with the the concrete because it had to be resistant because it was going to oil was going to move through it and the Japanese solution wasn't working out. So like they 
took it to a university in, 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 in Turkey and they came up with, you know, the right concrete mix to, to be able to withstand, you know, to, to meet the performance specifications that it needed to. So the, the point I'm making in a very inarticulate way is that, um, you know, obviously lots of investment, huge pipeline of projects has sort of incentivized and allowed a, you know, technically competent um, construction industry to develop around these projects. Which is a great, great point to end on, right? Because that's so much of what we've been out there saying through our infrastructure strategy and other documents that the way to solve our infrastructure pro projects is actually build enough forward certainty in the market so that we can invest in productivity, so that we can bring people in, so we can build, build the industry that we need to actually get a competitive and productive um, uh, construction sector backed up by a capable public sector. So um, look, um, I can only say thanks um, for taking the time to talk to us, um, Eric and, and, and Liz as well. This has been a, a really insightful session. Um, and I'd encourage people uh, interested in learning more about this topic to, to navigate over to the um, Transit Cost Projects website at transitcosts.com. Um, thanks once again. <laughs>